Well, I wanted to start your Sunday on a positive note, so I thought I'd begin by talking about pet peeves. We all know what pet peeves are. They're those little but annoying things in your life. We have them. Here are a few of mine. First, when I order Dr. Pepper at a restaurant and they say, we don't have that, but we have Mr. Pid. Not the same thing at all. (laughs) Or when cars on the highway get into the fast lane and they go right next to the slow car at the same speed. Really annoying. When neighbors mow their grass before 8 a.m. When people ring your doorbell and your child is napping. When people talk during movies or shows. And finally, when someone comes in halfway through a movie and they ask a bunch of questions about what's been happening. Those are just a few of my pet peeves. If you're around me, please don't do those. Let me stop and talk about that last one, the movie thing. If you've ever walked into a movie, whether in the theaters or in someone's house, halfway through, you know things don't make sense. You can't listen to one conversation or watch one scene and get the big picture. You miss how they got there, and where they're headed. Well, the same is true for passages in the Bible. It's always important to remember what came before this, and also how does it lead to the next text. So when Paul writes our passage that we're talking about today, Colossians 2, 16 to 23, we need to remember that it flows directly out of 2, 6 to 15. And as we'll see, the dilemma Paul raises today isn't actually answered until next week in chapter 3. Let me remind us what we have seen these last couple of weeks. So we were told in verse 6, Paul encouraged us to continue walking in Christ, being rooted in him and built up in him. And then in verse 8, he warns them. He warns them to avoid empty, deceptive philosophies that try to add to the work of Jesus. And then all the way from verses 9 to 15, Paul beautifully lays out the fullness we have through Christ's death and resurrection. We have been given a new heart, made alive with Jesus, said raised up to new life with power. We are forgiven and we have victory through Jesus. What Paul is getting after is that there is nothing we need that we don't have in Jesus Christ. And so that's the backdrop to today's passage. And it's why then in verses 16 to 23, Paul urges the Colossians to trust in Jesus' sufficiency rather than turning to empty practices and man-made rules. He says, in light of all that Jesus is, all that he has done for you and everything you have in him, it would be foolish to leave him and look for something else, to add to Jesus or to move past Jesus. So the main thing we'll see today is that Jesus is sufficient to save us and to change us. Let me quickly summarize what's known as the Colossian heresy or the false teaching at Colossae. You probably noticed as I read these verses, um, what makes this passage so difficult is that there are a number of phrases that are unfamiliar to us that were part of this Colossian heresy at the time. But what I find more interesting is that Paul didn't feel the need to explain in depth what it was teaching and rebuke it point by point. Instead, he says it's faulty because it's not according to Christ. It's a Jesus plus theology or a Jesus and theology rather than a Jesus alone theology. And anything that undermines the sufficiency of Christ's work will harm believers. And so that's Paul's main point in this passage. 
But let me try to take a minute to summarize what we do know about this false teaching at Colossae. If any of you are nerdy like me and you want all the good details, I actually posted a paper on this at ndcrow.com. So if you want to know more about this heresy, go there and read it. For the rest of us, I'll keep it brief and try to summarize it. So if you look in verse 16, you notice that Paul mentions a few things. He mentions food, drink, festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. It seems like this group is advocating strict abstinence from certain things likely meat and alcohol. Meanwhile, they're requiring observances of religious festivals and holidays. And so they're actually requiring things Christians were freed from, and they're outlawing things Christians were free to enjoy. Well, verse 18, it then shifts to elements having less to do with religious observance and more to do with religious experience. It mentions worship of angels, visions, and asceticism. The word asceticism here refers to extreme practices of self-denial or even punishing yourself to show the sincerity of your faith or the strength of someone's faith. Now, this rigid self-denial, it seems to be at the heart of this false teaching, which is why 20 to 23 goes in-depth with it. And it could be that they're trusting in their own works on what they do to kind of show, look, we've arrived spiritually. Or it could be connected to this language we see about elemental spirits and angels. Now, like many people around the world in animistic cultures, or like in Frozen 2, if you've watched that, or watched it a hundred times like I have during this pandemic, this group seems to believe that they need to keep these spiritual beings appeased or happy with them. So to summarize this false teaching, what we have is a mixture of some Old Testament Jewish practices mixed in with elements of Christianity, and it sprinkles in some local Gentile practices. And so the big danger we see here is what's called syncretism. And that's when another religion or even unbiblical ideas and false teaching are blended with Christianity. The big temptation for the church, it's not rejecting Jesus altogether, but it's blending or adapting biblical Christianity alongside of unbiblical ideas. And so even before we get into the meat of the text, this should cause us to pause and to apply this. It should force us to wrestle with where we're tempted to take away from biblical Christianity by mixing something else in. Whether that's politics, a prosperity gospel, the American dream, self-help moralism, social activism, nationalism, or consumerism. So whenever biblical Christianity blurs with cultural Christianity, It's biblical Christianity that loses out. And this is one of the main warnings throughout Colossians. And this should cause us to caution and ask, what idols and what ideologies have snuck into our faith that don't belong? Well, with that summary of the false teaching in mind, I want to consider two ways Paul points us to the sufficiency of Jesus. First, we'll notice the sufficiency of Jesus to save us. In verses 16 to 19. So if you follow along again in verses 16 to 18, you'll notice that there are two parallel commands. The church is told not to let anyone judge them or condemn them in verse 16. Now the word judge here, it has a more official sense than how we often use it today. When, in my, when I'm in my house, I might eat a whole bag of peanut butter M&Ms and tell my wife, hey, don't judge me. But that's not really what's going on here. 
This has less to do with someone's opinion of you and actually condemning someone spiritually. It seems that the Colossians were requiring these things and that they were then saying, if you don't do these things, these religious practices, festivals, and if you don't stop doing these other things related to food and drink, then you're not a real Christian. And so they're adding to Jesus. Well, verse 17, it reminds them that the reason they shouldn't trust in these things, especially the Old Testament practices of 2.16, is that they were temporary, they were temporary shadows pointing to a complete solution, which is Jesus. We know that the cleansing and the separation of these Old Testament practices, they highlight that we can't accomplish the thing that we desire. And so it's pointing to God and that God must provide a solution. And we know that Jesus comes as that sinless Savior. So now to go back to these shadows would make no sense at all. It's exchanging the medicine that heals your headache for a thermometer that tells you you need medicine. Or it would be like settling for a postcard of Hawaii rather than being there in person. And so Paul is teaching us that a step away from Jesus is always a step backwards spiritually. And this is why our passage begins with the word, therefore, at the beginning of 16. That word is a bridge connecting this passage to what came before it in 6 to 15. The reason turning to anything other than Jesus is such a problem is because Jesus fully, forever, and finally accomplished our right standing with God. Notice verses 13 and 14. It says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so Paul is saying here that though we were dead in our sin, God has made us alive together with Jesus, who is now at the Father's right hand, which we'll see next week in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. He says, Jesus is the one who took our sin and he paid for it at the cross. I love the language of verse 14 that I read. It describes our sin as a record of debts against us. It's like a nearly endless tab from our daily decisions to do what we want rather than what God wants. And the sin piles up on this record day after day, year after year, leaving us a terrible debt of sin before a holy God. It would be like getting a medical bill or a credit card bill that you know you have no way of paying. It's crushing, and it's overwhelming. And yet the good news in our text is that Jesus is the one who can pay that debt for you, that he is the sinless lamb of God. And because his blood is pure and spotless, he's able to step into the courtroom and pay your tab fully. Paul wants us to imagine through these verses in our mind that our sin, it says, is literally nailed to the cross, knowing that Jesus is paying for it there. And so he takes our sin, our condemnation, our judgment, and our penalty so that instead we could receive forgiveness, his righteousness, and a right standing before God. 
And so for us, there is no sin to atone for. There is no more condemnation or shame to remove. Our debt is paid in full. If you've ever listened to the Dave Ramsey show, you've probably heard callers who call in to scream with joy when they're finally financially debt-free. Well, when we read Colossians 2 and we see the salvation that we have in Jesus, it should stir up that level of joy in us as we celebrate the forgiveness and the freedom that we have in Christ. We're not only eternally debt-free before God, but we now have every blessing and every source we need in Christ. So let me tell you, if you are here today or if you're listening online and you are in Christ, beware of anything or anyone that tells you you are a lousy Christian. Beware of anything or anyone that puts more emphasis on our works than on the work of Jesus. Beware of anything that heaps undue guilt or shame on you that Jesus has died to remove. Beware of the thoughts in your own head. Beware of the whispers of your enemy. Beware of religious teachers or so-called Christians or books or songs or sermons. Beware of anything that calls into question the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus alone to make you forgiven, cleansed, and loved. Jesus has not left you as a second-rate disciple who needs to climb the ladder to please God. Jesus has made you a son or a daughter who is fully loved by the Father and the one he delights in. If you're here today or if you're listening online and you have never trusted in Jesus, maybe you thought your sin would keep you from him, or maybe you trusted in your good works or religion and now you see those cannot save you. Today is the day to trust in Jesus, to receive this free gift of salvation he gives you by grace. The old hymn says it this way, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus alone is sufficient to save. And the good news is Jesus is sufficient to save. What we'll see next is that not only is he sufficient to save us, but he's actually then sufficient to change us. Paul's not only concerned with what we trust in for a right relationship or a right standing with God, he's concerned about where we look for our own growth maturity, or sanctification. And there are a lot of people in the church that think, Jesus saves you, but then you kind of move past him onto a different spiritual program for growth. And yet that's what Paul warns against in verses 2, 6 to 7. He says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him, stay in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. And so the way we grow spiritually The way we change is not by moving past Jesus, but going deeper and deeper in Jesus. Tim Keller explains it this way. He says, we never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it is more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. 
The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make progress in the kingdom. And I think what happens so often is that we start in the right direction, and then like a kid learning to ride their bike who veers towards the road and must be brought back, we start to drift away from Jesus and toward other things. And we need to remind it that Jesus is the path. Let's take a few minutes to notice why Paul says Jesus really is sufficient to change us. First, notice in verse 19 that it says that it's in him that we are nourished, that we're fed, and that our growth comes from God. But listen as well again to these strong words in verses 20 to 23. It says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to these regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But listen to this. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence or the passions or the desires of the flesh. So Paul is drawing again from these key elements of this false teaching at Colossae. There's a focus on man-made rules and regulations that they are submitting themselves to. Paul says these rules aren't the rules that are part of God's good commands to help us grow, but these are according to human precepts and teachings. These are things being made up to make us feel good about our religion. And verse 23 really gets at the problem with legalism, asceticism, or any man-centered approach to spiritual growth. The problem is that even though these things might appear wise or pious or religious on the outside, they do nothing to go after the heart. Paul said it in that last verse, verse 23, they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. So they modify our behaviors on the outside, but they leave the heart unchanged. It would be like painting your car to hide the rust when the transmissions and the brakes don't work. Someone driving by might say, that's a nice-looking car, but what good is it if it can't take you anywhere? Well, let me reiterate that today we as Christians are more tempted by this than we realize. The cultural value of the autonomous, self-sufficient individual has gotten into the church, creating a form of Christianity that sees ourselves as the answer to our problems and our challenges. The message is that you are enough, that you are strong and brilliant and good. So just follow your heart. Put your mind to it, and you can do absolutely anything. Believe and trust in yourself. And we believe these lives that we are enough or that we should be enough. We're deceived into thinking that we just need to be stronger, more self-sufficient. When the Bible says it's actually our weakness and dependence that causes God to draw near to us. Like the Colossians, we're tempted to blend Christianity with this self-help theology that looks within when we face challenges or have needs. In her, in her book, Enough About Me, Jen Oshman writes, We're all reaching for that elusive gold star, becoming the person society says we can be. We keep pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, guzzling our coffee, and looking in the mirror to remind ourselves, You got this. 
Go get them. But then, then almost without exception and as if on cue, we reach the end of ourselves. The coffee cup is empty. The self-talk grows quiet. We collapse on the couch. We are tired. This isn't working. The problem is we aren't strong enough on our own. We aren't the answers to our problems and our struggles. Jesus is. There is work for us to do, but it's done in his power. Let me give you an example of where I've seen this lived out. Several years ago, I was in an all-guys small group, and almost every week you'd hear similar things. Someone was struggling with loneliness or lust. Someone looked at porn. Someone drank too much or whatever the sin might be. And the knee-jerk reaction from them was always something like this. Okay, I'm going to try harder this week. I'm going to strap on my spiritual boots. I'm going to put my head down, and I'm going to will myself to conquering this life-dominating sin. And you know what happened? Sometimes they'd have a few good days, maybe even a week, but inevitably they crashed. They tried to avoid sin in their own power, but didn't address the desires of the heart. Think of some of the struggles you have this year in 2020. What have you been dealing with? Maybe you've struggled with anger, loneliness, impatience, fear, or discouragement. How are you hoping to change or grow in those areas? Do you make a commitment that morning that I'm not going to blow it again in this area like I did yesterday, only to fail by lunch? Do you respond by simply trying harder, by gritting your teeth, by thinking positively, acting like it's no big deal, or willing yourself to overcome this struggle? Let me tell you, that might work for a little bit, but eventually you will fail. And I think part of why so many of us, we get tired or weary of the Christian life is because we're living on a focus on what we should do or not do and our our own power. Rather than making our primary focus being refreshed in Jesus, rooting ourselves deeper in Jesus, being fulfilled and satisfied by Jesus, and then being led by Jesus. Eugene Peterson writes, spiritual formation places Jesus at the center to keep us out of the center. Now next week's text in Colossians 3, it will speak more to how we actually place Jesus at the center. But I want to close by applying this through the framework of both being reactive and proactive, of playing both defense and offense. First, being reactive or playing defense. This week, in the moment of temptation, or as you feel yourself struggling, stop and root yourself in Jesus. Remember his power and sufficiency rather than trying to be sufficient yourself. Confess your impatience and anger and then ask him to give you his patience and his peace. When we we feel hurt or offended by others, rest in the grace and forgiveness of Jesus so you can give that grace to other people. Rather than wrestling for control when we struggle with fear and anxiety, Ask what it means that Jesus is your shepherd, the one who is in control of all things and cares for you. Dwell on passages about his supremacy over all things. Or when life drains you, or life disappoints you, fill your heart by drawing near to Jesus in honest prayer. Do these in the moments of struggle so that you're living out of the fullness we have in Christ, 
rather than the fallenness of our own flesh. Well, if those are how we react in situations in a defensive manner, let me give one way we can be proactive by resting in Jesus. Part of our challenge in this season is that so many of us are immersing ourselves in bad news or stressful news. We fill our mind and heart with what we see on social media, reading these online heated articles, or by reading and watching the news, which is probably why so many of you feel tense and anxious. And I get it. And my application here isn't to completely cut yourself off from the world, but maybe just scale back a little on your intake of all the bad news, the stressful news, and the personal opinions out there. And instead, take just some of that time over the month of August to immerse yourself in the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. One way we can do that together as a church is through a month-long reading plan in the book of Luke. I picked a gospel so that we could spend a whole month seeing who Jesus is, resting in him, refreshing our hearts on what we see in his beauty and his glory. So what if for a month we committed ourselves to setting our hearts and minds on Jesus and more of him rather than the things of this world that distract us. As I close, here's the point. Even in what I just said, the goal isn't us doing more spiritual stuff. The goal is seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. The goal is reorienting our life on Jesus rather than things of the world. Colossians is all about the supremacy of Jesus and the sufficiency of Jesus in every area of your life. He is exactly what you need, and he is all you need. He is sufficient to save us and to change us. Would you pray with me as we close? God, we are thankful for Jesus. We're thankful that he is the one who has paid our debt in full, who saves us, who has redeemed us. God, we're thankful that Jesus has made us right with the Father, and now we are adopted and loved and cared for. Lord, this week as we struggle with sin, may we look to your power to change us. May we rest in your sufficiency rather than our own. So God, now as we sing, may you fill our hearts with these truths. Help us to believe it, to feel it, and to experience it. In Jesus' name, amen.